Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. So if you will turn with me now to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We're in the middle of a series on parenting called Building Warriors. Learning from God's Word how to view and raise and teach and equip the next generation for service to Jesus, for the glory of God and for their greater joy. And of course, we've talked about a number of different things. I don't know about you, but when, as a parent who's really concerned about their kid, wants to see their kid grow, there are times when I wonder if I'm missing something. Have you ever wondered that? Like in the middle of raising them, like all of a sudden, maybe you're laying in bed at 3 a.m. and it hits you that there's something, oh my gosh, did I teach them this? Did I cover that? Uh, or maybe they go off to college, you have a phone conversation with them, and then 30 minutes later you think, you know, I never talked to them about that. Oh my gosh, I'm a failure. You ever been there? Yeah. That's what we're going to talk about today. When I was in my 20s, I used to do quite a bit of fishing, uh, mostly because I had a friend who had a boat, and you know, I like to take advantage of that friendship. And so uh, we, we were going fishing one time, and, and we, we, we backed the boat off, and I got him pushed off into the, into the water, and, and, and then I pulled the, pulled the truck up. And the moment I got the, out of the truck, uh, having parked it with a trailer, I don't know, maybe a couple football fields away, I heard all kinds of frantic yelling. And I turned around, and he was frantically waving his arms, telling me to, to come back. And I wondered what had happened. And as it turns out, boats have something in them called a plug. I don't know if you know this or not, but there actually is a plug in a boat. It's there to drain the water out that you put in it through either wet bodies or wet equipment or, or something like that. And somewhere in the middle of the checklist for everything from the air in the tires uh, to the boat trailer to making sure we had sufficient life jackets, gasoline, cranking it up, making sure it runs okay, we had forgotten to put the plug back in the boat. And as it turns out, if you take the plug out of the boat and put the boat in the water, the boat will immediately try to absorb all of the water in the lake. Uh, now, thankfully, we saved it. I managed to get back there in time, and somehow, some way, through enormous feats of strength and other way, otherwise, we, we managed to get that thing out of the lake. But sometimes, as a parent, I wonder if I'm not about to make a mistake like that with my kid. Do you? Is there something graphic, something, something life-threatening that I'm going to miss? And we, particularly when we think about the enormity of a task like raising the next generation, uh, it can get overwhelming. And you ask, did I miss something important? Back in August of 2017, Amy and I were invited down to uh, just a little bit below, about an hour below Atlanta, Georgia. The Kathy family of Chick-fil-A fame had, had started a nonprofit organization called Impact 360, seeking to raise up the next generation of leaders. And they invited myself and Amy and multiple other pastors from around the country down to preview what they do and also to open up their new campus. And in the middle of all of that, one of the vice presidents from Barna Research presented a brand new groundbreaking research on what they call Gen Z. 
the emerging generation. This is my children's age. If you were born after 1998, this is the generation that you belong to. And some of them are still in diapers, but others are, are entering and have maybe in their second year of college or perhaps their third year uh, of college. And, and so we got the first ever comprehensive research on this generation, how they think, what they do, what their values are. And in the middle of all of that, Mrs. Rainey elbowed me and as she leaned over and she goes, this is so great. I didn't break them. You ever felt that way? Yeah. Like, okay, this, this, okay. We we're relating all that research back to behaviors we saw in our children, some of which we didn't even see in ourselves because some of this is generational and it was just comforting to know, okay, Maybe we're doing this right after all. So let me give you a little encouragement at the outset. Number one, our kids are a lot more resilient than you think they are. They really are. And number two, you and I have a guide to help us ensure that we don't miss anything big like a plug in a boat. Right? We, we, we can do that. And we see it here in Proverbs 6. It's a checklist, if you will embedded inside a father's advice to his son that summarizes all of the important areas we need to cover. These are the most important things. They are five can't miss, don't miss issues with your children. Do I have your attention? All right, let's, let's look at these together. Starting with the idea of fiscal discipline. Teach your children fiscal discipline. Take a look at verses one to five. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge to, for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Now, there's a particular real-life situation that gives rise to more practical advice in these verses on how to handle your money. Specifically, dad brings up the occasion that one day one of your old dopey college buddies with a horrible FICO score might come up and ask you to co-sign a loan so that he can get a car, so that he can get a flat screen television, whatever it is. And in that moment, you need to learn to say, yeah, there you go. Yes, yeah, so some things aren't complicated, are they? Just say no, and it's likely that maybe Solomon himself had just said no to someone like this, and then it dawned on him, like it does to most of us who are parents, we encounter a difficult situation, we get through it, and then we go, you know what, i got to warn my kid about this. And so he turns around and he says to his son, don't do this. All right? Now, it, what's the irony in all of this, because the warning is against any sort of financial entrapment, isn't it ironic, though, that, that in our day, by the time our kids get to this age where this advice is appropriate, it is simultaneously the age at which we're starting to co-sign stuff for them? Might be a car, might be an education. Now, and here's what you need to know. Scripture does not forbid debt. Debt in and of itself is not a sin, okay? Now, there are some kinds of debt that are, but debt in and of itself is not a sin. Amy and I have a mortgage on our home here in Shepherdstown. Uh, in his letter to Philemon, Paul tells his dear friend, if your servant Onesimus in returning to you owes you anything, charge that to my account. In other words, don't let him be in debt to you. I'll be in debt to you. Here's an apostle saying, I'll, I'll hold the note. You hold the note and, and have my name on it rather than Onesimus's name on it. Debt is not inherently sinful, but you need to hear this as well. Debt is dangerous. It's a lot like a loaded gun. 
It's not wrong to own one, not wrong to have one, not wrong to shoot one, but you wouldn't want to give one to an eight-year-old kid with no instruction and say, just go have fun, right? Debt, for some of you, is a lot like alcohol. Most of you have some of it from time to time. Some of you have too much when you have it, and a few of you have so much of it, you're completely out of control, and the only way you're going to get your life back is to quit cold turkey. That's debt. And what Solomon is telling his son, and, and really us and our children as well, is that we just need to be very careful when it comes to this issue. According to NASDAQ, total consumer debt in February 2015, that's four years ago, was $3.34 trillion, with a T, dollars. That's how much money is owed. Right? That's not our national debt. That's what you, me, and every other individual, when you take our mortgages, our car notes, our consumer debt, if we have it, take all that added up, 3.34 trillion. Average credit card debt in the American home right now is $1,098. Now that doesn't sound all that bad, does it? 1,098. The problem is that figure includes people who don't carry revolving debt. In other words, they get the statement every month, and the only reason they're using that card is so they can get three, four hundred dollars worth of points to buy Christmas presents with at the end of the year. But they're paying it off every month. They're not holding it. They're not keeping that debt. If you take those people out of the equation and you have only people who carry revolving debt, they've always got debt, that figure jumps on average from $1,098 to $7,743. That's how much it goes up. That, that's how much in debt so many of us are. Our nation now owes a collective $1.48 trillion to student loan debt. And the average school debt now upon graduation is $39,000. That's not bad if you're training for a profession that's going to start you out at 100000 a year or more. All right? But otherwise, it might not be the best decision. I'm not telling you not to send your kids to school. I'm not telling you to tell your kids not to go to college. I am telling your kids, do you, to teach your kids to be wise about this, starting around their sophomore year of high school. You need to start thinking about what you want to do for a living. You need to start thinking about the kind of training uh, that, that you need to get in order to get from A to B. And you need to start thinking finances because mom and dad for the most part can handle some of it but we really can't handle all of it for the most part can we mom and dad and so you need to start teaching your kids because all of this fits within this, the confines of debt we want our children at the end of the day to avoid entrapment and the way to keep them from doing that is to give them the right perspective look again at verses four and five and we'll see that perspective solomon says to his son give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. You know who he's describing there? Payday lenders, people who line up on a college campus giving you a free pizza. People who will tell you, you can have that widescreen TV, you can have that leather couch, you can have this, you can have that, and you don't have to save, you don't have to wait on it. We've got just a certain number of easy payments and you can take it home today. Solomon says to his son, you need to assume when you hear language like that that those people do not have your best interests at heart. They have their own. Which is another way of saying, with the reference to the gazelle, son, when you see things like that, when you see advertisements like that, when you get offers like that, I went to Belk down in Winchester a couple of weeks ago. And I realized, I went in there because I realized after 45 minutes of a drive with my son that I'd forgotten my belt. And nobody wants to see that. So I said, let me, let me, let me get a belt. 
Well, I got two of them, two for the price of one. Okay, well, they got me on that one. And then I walked up and they said, would you like to have another $10 off? And I said, sure. And they said, all you need to do is what? What do you, you want to guess what it was? Sign up for a belt card. Yeah, no, thank you. You don't want to save $10? Not that way. No, not that way. Here's what Solomon's telling his son. When you hear language like that, as attractive as it may sound, you don't need to see a good offer. You need to see a predator. You need to see somebody who's coming after you, who's coming after your money, who is seeking to entrap you. Forbes magazine every year highlights the 400 wealthiest people in America. And by the way, around 70% of them are not old money. They didn't inherit it. They started with probably what you and I have today on average, and they, they built their empires. And every one of them are always asked, what's the most important factor in your success? And without hesitation, they all answer, get out of debt and stay out of debt. Fiscal discipline may be one of the most critical needs of our emerging generation. Some of you need to hop in, even if it's on the backside uh, of some of the financial peace classes that we're holding here on campus, because you need to model this for your kid. Maybe you're not modeling it very well right now. And for your own fiscal health as well, this is a place where you need to go. This is an investment that you need to make. So can you teach them this? That's my question. So to the parents, the grandparents who are raising your kids, how are you doing? You know, it was a joy for me to speak several, several weeks ago to several of our families. We've got probably, I don't know, 35, 40 families here on this who are part of the Covenant family who are also federal employees or they work for companies that are contracted to the federal government. And you, you may remember, I know the news goes fast and we forget very quickly, but it wasn't all that long ago. We had this huge shutdown and these people weren't getting paid and we fed many of them and it was our joy to do that. But I remember talking to one family in particular, I just said, how are you all doing? And they looked at me and smiled and said, Pastor, we're doing really well, actually. By God's grace, we've been able to be faithful to his principles and what he teaches about finance. We, we don't have a whole lot of debt. We've, we've built up a good amount of savings. And as long as this thing don't last till August, we'll be okay. What a joy it was as a pastor to hear that from one of our families. And, and the thought that occurred to me was what a legacy they're leaving to their kids. What a model they are presenting to their children. Teach your kids fiscal discipline. And then secondly, teach them to have a strong work ethic. Uh-oh. Let's go to verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is encouragement to a work ethic. To a work ethic. Paul put it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, about a thousand years later. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Those are strange words in our day, aren't they? There's a story about two young adults around college age, 20, 21 years old, and they were talking, and one was, you could tell, was quite worried and frustrated and was sharing with the other one. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, dad works all day, slaves all day, pays all of my bills, sends me to college. When I come home with a bag of dirty laundry, mom just grabs it and goes and washes it. My parents take care of everything. 
And his friend said, well, that sounds like a really sweet deal. What are you worried about? He said that they might try to escape. Well, that's the idea. It really is the idea, isn't it, mom and dad? That at some point, our children are going to be able to do this on their own. That we would raise them up to be able to do that. Listen, if your child loves sleep and hates alarm clocks, if they rarely start and never finish, if you've got a kid that says later, but what they really mean is never, if you've got a kid with big dreams, but little to no performance or follow through on the execution, then both you and your child have some work to do. Teach your child a strong work ethic. And that shift needs to take place. It starts with the most unsophisticated advice. Look at verse 9. How long will you lie there? When will you arise from your sleep? This isn't a highly complicated message, is it? Get out of bed. Get out of bed. Nobody else, like, like I've never had trouble in my house with that. Have you? Maybe it's our neighbors that had that issue with our kids getting out of bed. I had that problem, I'll admit to you. Particularly in my early high school years, I didn't want to get out of bed. I'd go to bed later than my parents told me. It was probably wise for me to go to bed, and then I would just lay there. Whoa. Mom come in, hey, bang, 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 bang on the door. It's time to get up. You got school in an hour. You got to eat breakfast. You got to get dressed. You got to take a bath. Like, it was one of those things. You're, like, oh, you're just laying in the bed. One day, my dad figured out how to fix all that. I was laying there one morning, so soundly, and all of a sudden I felt something cold and wet. He hit me right in the face with a cup of cold water. And so I know what you're thinking. Some of you are like, that's abusive. Well, I don't know about all that, but I will tell you this. There is something, and I can say this from experience, there is something about wet sheets that will make you get out of bed. It really will. And my dad loved me. You've heard me brag on my father. I love my father. But he, that was one of those mornings. I'm like, about the time I'm clearing my eyes, he's walking out of the room going, get out of bed, boy. You're burning daylight. Sometimes you, your kids need a little encouragement. What are you going to do to get them out of bed? And then once they get out of bed, they need to emulate, Solomon says, the ant. Now, the ant's got a couple of things here that help him survive and thrive. The first is, is intrinsic motivation. We find that in verse 7. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler. There's nobody, no need for anybody to micromanage you. You need to become the kind of person that not only isn't afraid of hard work, but you don't need somebody always going behind you to make sure you did what you said you were going to do. You need to follow through when you say you're going to do something. You don't need people micromanaging you. You're intrinsically motivated. The second thing the ant has is preparation. Verse 8, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Work is done in sync with ways in which the greatest amount of reward will be reaped. You've heard that old saying, work smarter, not harder. Yeah. And this is what we teach our kids. Don't be afraid of hard work, but do your work wisely. Do it in a way that it's actually going to provide profit, not only for you, but for your employer uh, or for your employees if you happen to own your own business. you got to do these sorts of things. And in this environment of entitlement, if you can model and teach the risk and reward for a, of a godly work ethic for your child, it is highly unlikely that your child will ever be unemployed. I can tell you that. Several years ago, Amy and I were out on a date night. We were at a Panera Bread over in Maryland, and, and I remember sitting there by the fire, drinking coffee, talking. Mrs. Rainey noticed that I was kind of distracted. She said, what are you looking at? I said, I'm 
I'm just looking at this kid over here. I couldn't get my eyes off of him. Probably 17, 16, 17-year-old young man. Apron on, moving, constant motion, never stopping, big smile. How you doing? Always service-oriented, looking, looking for everybody else. Oh, let me get that for you. It looks like you're done. Are you finished? Hey, would you like a, a refill on that Coke? Would you like another coffee? Let me bring that for you. I know it's right there. Let me, let me get that for you. Here's another one. You see something on the floor? Guess what he did? It's just something simple like that that makes me go. She said, what are you looking at? I said, I'm looking at that kid over there. You know, I have no business being in the restaurant business. But if I were in the restaurant business and I saw somebody like that, I'd walk over to that young man and I'd have two questions for him. How much are they paying you? How much would it take to get you to come work for me? Because you know what that's the result of? A godly, strong work ethic. That's what it's a result of. There was an old grandmother that once said, the best place to go when you are broke is back to work. <laughs> Give your child a strong work ethic. And then having done that, teach them within the, the confines of that job, teach them to walk in integrity. Look at verses 12 to 15. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. So there's a warning here to the son. Don't become a scoundrel. And the etymology here of the Hebrew term just means a man who is of no good use. Not, not that they're worthless, not that they're, they're created in the image of God. They have infinite worth, but it's different to say you have infinite worth than to say you are of use to anybody. Someone of no good use. And this man is characterized by two things, Scripture tells us. The first is a crooked mouth. He says one thing, but he does something else. You ever met somebody like that? They talk out of both sides of their mouth. They, talk, they say one thing when they talk to you, and, and they say something else when they're talking about you. They wink. That's the other thing they do. Deceptive communication, the pointing of the feet, all of that is a, a cultural expression in the ancient world of somebody who would, in our world, do something like, oh, I don't know, debate the meaning of the word is or use phrases like alternative facts. Someone who is double-tongued, who does not walk in integrity. Over time, that kind of person is going to erode trust, not just in themselves, but they're also going to undermine the behavior uh, the trust of people around them that's needed for normal and healthy social relationships. And what, what motivates this behavior is given to us in verses 14 and 15. It's a wicked heart that lacks integrity. And the result of that, that you, let me read verse 15 again. This is the end of the road, Solomon says, for everyone who doesn't walk in integrity, therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly when you least expect it. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. At the Rainy Home, there is no more severe punishment that can be inflicted on a child than the punishment that comes in response to a lie. I mean, you can break stuff. You can make a mess. You can be disobedient, obstinate. You can scream no. You can show disrespect. There's all kinds of things you can do. And we deal with those things at various levels, depending on the situation. 
But when the, but I'm going to tell you, the hammer comes down at our home when we find out that one of our kids has lied to us. And we don't do that because we're angry. We don't do that because we're trying to be monsters to our children. We do it for the same reason that Solomon does it to his son. We want our children to walk in integrity. We do not want them talking out of both sides of their mouth because we do not want calamity to befall them. Teach your children a strong work ethic. Teach your children to walk in integrity. Fourthly, teach them to be sexually faithful. Teach them to be sexually faithful. Verses 20 to 35 or 15 verses that lay out in graphic detail, and I will leave it to you to read those uh, this afternoon and throughout the week, but, but this is a description of what to avoid and specifically who to avoid when seeking a mate. Like a gold ring and a pig's snout, elsewhere we read in Proverbs, is a beautiful woman without discretion. Someone who's a knockout, but who has no discretion, they're aggressive, they flaunt themselves. Solomon says, what you need to see is a pig wearing jewelry. That's what you need to see. And you need to avoid that individual. Because young men like to talk about hotness. I get that. But hell is also hot. Let's be careful here about who we choose and who we avoid. And then verses 24 to 26 describe this specific situation as involving another man's wife. And Solomon says, don't become that person. Don't let that sort of person bring you to ruin. In fact, he actually says something very shocking here. I had to struggle with this for a while when I was preparing for this message. He says, son, it's actually better to sleep with a prostitute than to become engaged emotionally or otherwise in an adulterous relationship. Now, he's not condoning prostitution, nor are we. Okay, feel like it, it's, it's somewhat necessary in the wake of everything that happened to Robert Kraft this past week that we emphasize that here. But here's what he is saying. The cost comparison here, and if you look at these verses, you see it. One's a loaf, the other is your life. Both are sinful and will cost you dearly, but the cost of an adulterous relationship can't be measured. And so here's the answer. Take a look at Proverbs 15.5. Drink water from your own cistern. Do I need to explain what that means to anybody? Flowing water from your own well. Go and get married and enjoy yourself with your wife, with your husband. This is God's good intention. And we see that laid out from the very beginning. In Genesis, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, my, my friend Mike Crawford, who'll be preaching here in just a few weeks, he says, you know, he said, my, the women in my church never get more excited than when I tell them that before God gave Adam a woman, he gave Adam a job. All right? You got to leave your father and mother. You got to get to a place of self-sufficiency. Then you hold fast to the wife and then you become one flesh and then you get the joy of all of that. This naked and unashamed. This is God's good intention. Now, in the world we live in, how do we expect them to embody this? Well, Proverbs 6 says, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. You can stand in the gap and model and teach what this means, healthy sexuality for your kids. 
Several weeks ago, I came down, I think it was a Saturday morning. Well, I'm quite sure it was a Saturday morning because what I'm about to describe for you is followed by pancakes. So that means it's Saturday. Amy was standing at the sink. I walked up behind her. I reached over and I put my arms around her and I kissed her neck a couple of times. Now, for those of you gentlemen who are married to a woman similar to the woman I'm married to who is not, shall we say, a morning person, you, you understand that every time you make a move like that that early in the morning, it's a risk assessment, right? You, you get that. Um, that morning it paid off. It was really cool, actually. She turned around and returned the favor, and I thought, whoa, this is awesome. Nothing inappropriate, nothing graphic, nothing that our kids shouldn't have seen, but it was right there in the kitchen, and it was, shall we say, more than the normal amount of affection. Until one of my kids in the background goes, do you all have to do that while I'm eating? <laughs> now, there's something to be said for modeling what this looks like for your kids. Have a healthy relationship with your spouse. And for some of you, if that means you, you have to get into counseling, or yeah, listen, let us know. We will resource you. The church isn't here just for the pastor to get up and yell at you. We will resource you with the tools that you need to get from A to B, whatever B means for you. And in this regard, it just might be one of those areas where you model for your children what this looks like. And for some of you, you may go, well, I've already blown it, pastor. I've committed adultery or I've got all this sexual brokenness in my past. Well, well then be honest with them about it. Don't hide that from them. Talk to them about the grace of God available through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Talk about the freedom that you feel in Christ. And if you're not free right now, come talk to us. You can find freedom no matter what you've done. We just observe the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus precisely so that you can live in freedom from those kinds of things. But also be honest with them about the consequences, the temporary ones that sometimes you still have to live with even after you've been forgiven and teach your children. And some of you are going, well, well, pastor, I'm a single parent. How am I supposed to model healthy sexuality? By saving yourself until and unless God sends another individual into your life. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. It's easy for you to say, pastor, you're a married man. And you just said that you just described for us that things are pretty good with you and the wife right now in that department. Touche. But the relatively privileged position from which I speak on that issue doesn't change the truth of what I'm saying. Okay? And, and hear me well. Even within marriage, there are going to be times. There's going to be chronic illness. There could be paralysis. There could be, there could be a hundred things that put a married couple on the bench in that department. And your responsibility in that moment is to understand something that, that our culture really doesn't understand. Healthy sexuality is a good thing. It is a wonderful gift from God. But please stop saying, I need it. You need air, water, food, shelter, clothing. You do not need sex. And when you use that word need next to sex, you have made sex your God. And that's a huge part of what's wrong with our culture right now. You don't need that. So healthy, a healthy life in this department means you're doing it according to God's plan. You know, I've, I've got an older pastor now that are dear friends. He's over in Maryland. And years ago, we were sharing our experiences with pornography with each other, the, the past sins in our own lives and 
how each of us came to repent of that. And his was actually a very highly addictive habit. He had to get some pretty intensive counseling. And he was really, really open with his sons. He has four of them. They're all adults now. He's got multiple grandchildren. They're married. They're godly men. A couple of them are pastors. And he said, you know, and, and I, it, of course, Sam at this point was probably 12, 13. He was getting ready to enter puberty. And so I'm looking at this older guy. And I said, look, I, how'd you do it? And he said, you know, when it came to this area, I just was honest with him about my brokenness and what it cost me. He said, honestly, what it still cost me. But then I, I pointed to the grace of God and the reward of their mother. And I told him, boys, you really, at the end of the day, you want somebody like your mom. And I can tell you, if you're hooked on this stuff, nobody with the character of your mother is going to come within a thousand yards of you, nor should they. And he said that, you know, obviously combined with my, my presence in their lives, it, it, it seemed to help. Mom, dad, even in your past brokenness, you can help the next generation break the chains of sexual sin and brokenness, but raise them to be sexually faithful. And then, of course, all of these things together, whether we're talking about fiscal discipline, a strong work ethic, sexual faithfulness, any of these things we've been talking about, they're really meaningless unless they are all governed by this last thing. Mom, dads, we need to teach our children to fear the Lord. We need to teach our children to fear the Lord. In verses 16 to 19, we see that. Avoid these behaviors because God hates them. Right in the middle of all this. Right? It is the centerpiece of the sixth chapter of Proverbs. Right in the middle of all this sage advice for a young man. It's like the centerpiece at a dining room table that draws your gaze the father is admonishing his boy to ground all of his life decisions in the fear of his maker. Knowledge that his maker has expectations, understanding of behaviors that indicate failed expectations. Let me read these verses to you. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. That last one is individuals that leverage this one and that one and that one and that one and then turn them against each other in a way that will benefit the individual. Sowing discord among brothers. Every time Solomon says, you are tempted to go down the wrong road. Remember the terror of the Lord. The fact that Psalm 86 says the following, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Churches don't talk much anymore about the fear of the Lord, even though it's right there in plain sight. Unite my heart to fear you. It's amazing to me. Parents are like, I don't want my kid to fear God. I don't want my kid to hear about God hating things. Then you don't want to introduce your kids to the Bible. God is not your girlfriend. And your kids, what will save their life and their soul begins, actually earlier we read that in Proverbs, with the fear of the Lord. It is the knowledge of of, the, of God and the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. I, I, don't, I, don't want my kids, I don't want my kids to fear. Why not? Don't you teach them to fear moving cars and traffic? 
Don't you, don't you teach them to fear a hot stove? How many of you think it, it would be okay for your child to stare directly into the sun? Anybody? No. Because you recognize that even from a distance of 92 million miles, that sucker will burn the retinas out of your child's eye sockets to the point of blindness. So why, mom and dad, do we think we should teach our children to be casual in the presence of the son's maker? Teach your child to fear the Lord. Not to a point of being petrified and afraid of it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the same healthy fear that you would have for something that is good and wholesome, but not to be toyed with. You get what I'm saying here? Teach them to fear the Lord because it is a healthy fear of the Lord that is the beginning of true knowledge. It's the starting point to eternal life. I tell you, Christianity in America is at a crisis point right now. So I realize when I'm, when I'm talking about the subject of raising kids, I, the reason I'm emphasizing the idea of building a warrior mom and dad is, is this isn't just about a good parenting series. This is about the next generation of Christianity in North America. And make no mistake, God doesn't need the North American church, doesn't need us and all of our fancy programs. He could burn us down tomorrow. He would still be God. And if you think any differently, you have a way low view of your maker. Doesn't need anything. I'm talking about for our sakes. What is the future of the church in America? Because we've really introduced our kids to something that, that Houston Smith, a, a philosopher of religion, called moralistic therapeutic deism. I won't break down all those words for you because it might put some of you to sleep. But let me tell you what moralistic therapeutic deism is. It's a deadly substitute for Christianity that teaches in a conservative North American evangelical context that God is just this old borderline senile grandfatherly type sitting on a throne who thinks you're absolutely amazing and wants everything in life to be about you and wants you to fulfill all your dreams and seize your destiny as long as you're not gay and never vote for a Democrat. That's what it is. You know what's absent from all of that? Fear of the Lord. He is not to be trifled with. We want to tell people Jesus died for them because they're amazing? Then why is the cross necessary? A man taking my place, beaten to an unrecognizable pulp, nailed naked between heaven and earth, unrecognizable by some of his own family. If God did that to Jesus, what do you think he thinks about my sin? And we have the gall to tell people it's because they're amazing? It's because God is amazing. God is amazing. Not me, not you. And the fear of the Lord will get that pecking order back where it should be. And our kids, if we can get that lined up properly, we will raise champions in the next generation. But we got to get this milquetoast crap out of our churches that tells them it's all about them and all about their dreams and their destiny and how amazing they are. The cross only makes sense against the backdrop of the fear of a wrathful God. And when you teach your children to fear God, you, I, I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother, and I wouldn't, I'm not recommending this, but I'm telling you, it's a symbol of, of how far we've come to a certain extent. When there was a thunderstorm, 
I was taught to sit in the living room and be quiet out of respect for the one who created the storm. Now, I don't think that's something you have to do with your kids, but I'm going to tell you something. That's something I remember as a kid. The fear of the Lord. Encouraged. Brought to mind constantly. That, and mostly because that fear is also the beginning point to understanding His love for you. So does this mean God doesn't love? No, it's not what it means at all. But you'll never understand the depths of the riches of his love if you don't understand how un utterly unconditional it was. You think he died for Joel because Joel's amazing? Joel's not amazing. Wait till we get to the end of the age and God plays the video of my life for you. You're going to rue the day you ever called me to be your pastor. It, that's where we are. I'm not looking forward to that day. But you know what I am looking forward to? After it's over, everybody understands how utterly unconditional was the love of God for this sinner. This is what the Scriptures teach. This is the beginning point for understanding that God would endure that to save a people for himself, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The fear of the Lord is the only thing that will motivate your kids to understand that fully and to help them see what is right. But they cannot do it without Jesus. When they are led by fear of their Creator to embrace the love of their Creator embodied in the cross of Christ, they receive forgiveness from God and a capacity to live in the fullness of everything we see here in Proverbs. With the fear of the Lord, they can have fiscal discipline. They can walk in integrity. They can have a strong work ethic. They can be sexually faithful. All these things that we want to excuse now in our kids because, well, it's a different day, or, or well, they didn't and we're making excuses for them. What we need to be doing is holding them to the same standards that God's Word holds them to and then telling them rightly in accordance with the gospel that is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that is the only avenue to that life. You're not going to get there any other way. Son, daughter, you must fear the Lord. Give your children wisdom and ground that wisdom in Jesus. And watch the next generation be exponentially greater than the last. Let's pray. Father, you are good because you tell us the truth. And we thank you that as we look at passages like this, we can have the hope to see a future in our children that perhaps some of us never even saw for ourselves. So help us to seize that future, beginning with what your word says is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God. Moving from there into all these other areas of life where you expect us to demonstrate that fear and that love and that obedience and that loyalty in our honesty, in our work, in our sexuality. Father, in every area of our life. Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, may they begin today with the fear of the Lord. Understanding that their sins have separated them from you, but also understanding very quickly on the heels of that, that you sent your Son into time and space to take the penalty for their sin so that they might have eternal life. 
penalty for sin is death. That is the fear of the Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the love of the Lord. And Lord, if if there's someone here who doesn't know you, may they embrace both in a full-throated manner today that would change their life and change the trajectory of their children's lives and their grandchildren's lives until you return. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.